Hi, welcome to our first all-in-person episode of Free Lunch, the podcast uh, of the Salem Center, where we discuss among ourselves uh, issues of the day. And uh, we're recording this a few days after the 20th anniversary of the September 11 attacks. And uh, just talking amongst ourselves, we've all noticed this is just a, a momentous event in the country's history. It's impacted so much of our, uh, pretty much everything going forward. There's not an area of policy or of life where you can't you know, notice some change that traces back to 9-11 in some way. And so we wanted to take this occasion as a, a center where we think about policy issues to think about how has the shadow of 9-11 shaped or altered American policy? Uh, in what ways is it a factor uh, or things that came out of it a factor in the other kinds of issues that we think about and focus on here? We had an event last week uh, specifically on American foreign policy in the wake of a 9-11, and, and that's within bounds of what we can talk about here. But I'm, I'm thinking it'll be in a way broader and uh, more to do with uh, domestic policy as well. Uh, but let me just start by uh, asking us all to uh, introduce ourselves and to reflect on on where we were on that day, how we learned about it. I'm Greg Salmieri. I was uh, just in my first year of graduate school uh, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, having moved away from the New York area for the first time hmm. and uh, thinking a lot about the role of ideas in life, focusing on some pretty technical ideas in philosophy, but I had the conviction that... Um, Philosophical ideas are what drive history and what drive people. And uh, I saw what happened as a, a horrifying confirmation of that. Um, I saw people ideologically motivated to uh, strike at something that I saw as really good and uh, a country not ideologically armed to fight it. So that was my big picture take on it at the time. And I, But I also just felt, I mean, I woke up in the morning and I had the... Um, New York Times set to email me its headlines, so every morning I would read them, and I, I woke up a little bit late, as I often did. And so I got my email slowly kind of coming in, and I got all the events kind of in the order they happened as the emails loaded up on the computer. Um, plane, really, a plane crashed into the Trade Center, and then, oh my God, it's an attack, as, as everyone did, but just not live on television. And while this was happening, I remember one of my friends from high school uh, IMing me at the time uh, and saying, you know, we're attacked, we're at war. And there's a sense of unreality about about the whole thing as I kind of sorted it out. I had a lot of friends who were uh, living in Manhattan at the time and I was trying to get in touch with them. Um, it was a, a horrifying morning and I, I had both a sense of the horror of what was happening and this unreality of being somewhere new and apart from the part mm -hmm. of the country that I had grown up in where this was happening. And um, but also the feeling of this being sort of playing out in the real world on a grand scale, the kinds of ideas and conflicts that I was concerned about in my studies. That was my take on it um, at the time or my reaction. So um, I'm Carlos Carvalho, I'm a professor here at McCombs, also uh, in the Salem Center. And I was in Brazil still at the time. I was actually a few months before I moved to the U.S. I was getting ready to fly to the U.S. two days after mm -hmm. September 11th. Mm -hmm to visit some graduate schools that I was applying to that I had been accepted and was trying to sh shop around for where, where to go and I was supposed to fly to New York City and visit Columbia and visit NYU and that clearly didn't work out. Um, and, and you know, a few months later I, I moved to the US but, but that day I was, I was actually working on a paper with my advisor in Brazil at a Federal University of Rio de Janeiro which is like a, not a particularly nice location in, in the city of Rio uh, and 
we hear the story, oh, and we were in the office and, and somebody says something, we walk outside and, and, and there's a food truck that has a little TV, a tiny TV, and we spend the whole day essentially watching that little TV, you know, as, as, as things evolved during that day. Um, and just my reaction to it was, was just like this, this, of course, the shock, the, the immediate shock. And, and, and I guess that immediately, I think, there was indications that there were Islamic terrorists being part of this, which, again, wasn't surprising in any way, shape or form but once it happened. Right. Um, but I was I grew up in, in the 80s in a family and in, in a country that, that, that always looked at the U.S. or at least a, a large part of the country looked at the U.S. as a as a shiny city on the hill, really as an example of what we should be. And Brazil was always failing to be, you know, something close to like, like the U.S. And I was at a moment of my life incredibly excited about the possibility of moving here. And, you know, you immediately start feeling that, well, how different is it going to be? I mean, I, I had been to the U.S. multiple times and as a tourist, and but now I'm moving to a place in the middle, immediately after this event, right? And I guess all I can say from, from just fast forwarding uh, is that it was... I was always very welcome here. There was, even though we're living at a very transitioning time, starting 2000, uh, late 2001, early 2002, this place was home from the very beginning. Uh, and, and, you know, we're able to, to, I came here with some books only, and I'm pretty happy where I am right now. I'm wearing my hat here, indicating that I'm now American <laughs> citizen and very proud of being here. So uh, I was somehow, looking back, one thing that, that, that surprises me is that how not bad it was, even oh. though lots of things change. I think yeah. the, the experience as a foreigner living here, building a life here was, you know, was, was just as wonderful as I expected. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, so I'm Tom Gilligan. I'm a research associate here in the Salem Center as well. I'm a little bit more uh, wise than these men, young men. <laughs> I'm older. Uh, in 2001, I was a professor at the University of Southern California uh, in Los Angeles. Uh, so we were all just getting up and awakening when the news started to come of the attack on the World Trade Centers. Um, we uh, just watched it, watched it unfold. It was a sunny day in Southern California. Uh, the immediate impact was that the USC closed down for the day. I think most universities and businesses kind of just decided to shut down for the day to take stock of what was happening because, of course, what the attack brought to the forefront of everybody's mind were security concerns. Were there additional attacks? There were that day, you know, in D.C. and an attempt on the Capitol and in the Pentagon. Uh, and uh, there were uh, follow-on attacks later on, but there was just concern that week that something else was going on. So we shut down for a day. Tuesday, we went back to class, though. So Tuesday, classes are going on again, and the university is operating fairly well. I lived in a town near Pasadena, California, where the Jet Propulsion Laboratory existed, and that's kind of a, a research institute for the federal government. And that whole town shut down. All the schools and the elementary schools and everything stayed closed all week. Uh, the town was basically secured. There was a cordon around the town. Uh, and it, I don't know if they were operating on any kind of uh, explicit intelligence, but I think what was going on throughout the country was that federal sites who were thought to be key to American strategic interests were, were uh, hard protected during that week. Uh, you know, I think, Carlos, you said this. Life pretty much went on. Uh, but it was kind of like a slowly evolving train wreck the rest of that fall, right? You were, there were a couple other incidents, I think, that fall. I think the uh, shoe bomber mm -hmm. is pretty close onto there, and there were a couple other revelations of attempts to do more damage there. 
Afghanistan was invaded, and, and it looked like there was some military action going on, but there was just a general acceleration of conflict and responses and concerns associated with uh, radical Islam and the terrorism that that promoted. Uh, nothing um, dramatic as what ultimately happened was revealed then, but it was it was quite remarkable. But I, I think I agree with your point. There was It was interesting how weighty and uh, fraught with danger the environment was and how our ordinary lives carried on, with the exception of air travel, with the exception of some banking activities that became uh, visible to the government ways that they hadn't been before. But it, it's kind of remarkable how life went on, at least in the early months after the attack. I'm Steve Rashin. I'm a postdoc here at Salem Center. And when September 11th happened, I was in high school uh, in New Canaan, Connecticut, so right outside New York City. And I, what I, what I remember in that day is so many uh, so many of my friends' parents worked in the city. So it's just a, a sense of fear because I, I, I knew that, you know, my father worked in, uh, in Stanford, so I, 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 did, I, I didn't have to worry about him. But so many of my friends, I knew that their, their parents worked in Wall Street. They worked in lower Manhattan. And so yeah, the, the, the sense of fear is just something that I've, I've never forgotten. And then with that sense of fear, I, just, I remember very weird things about that day. Like I remember having a quiz in biology. That's about the only thing I ever remember from high school bi- <laughs> biology. So you and, had to go to school that day. Yeah, yeah. Right. So the when the planes hit the World Trade Center, I was in band class, oh, and then right. the first hour. You're right there. It was nine in the morning. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's yeah. Right. It was also probably the one time I was on time to <laughs> high, high school. But I, I remember watching the towers fall in band class, and and again mm-hmm. because we were so close, it was there was just. It, the the sense like I had I I remember no, basically nothing except like it was the I keep coming back to the fear but that's that's what it that's what it was because we thought we were directly you know there's someone was attacking you know our parents and yeah I like I I don't I don't remember anything that happened a month after except that my family we got so sick of the news we watched Nick at Night because that was the that was the only thing that would give us sort of a little bit of of solace. <laughs> I think that that point about fear is really well taken. I mean, there's a, a particular way in which that would have been most present to people so close to the city and with family and I also had friends there but there's a way in which I think there was a kind of metaphysical fear, something larger than the fear of the particular event that happened. Um I remember I was in, I guess, high school or middle school when the earlier attack on the Trade Center happened in, I guess it was 94. Mm-hmm. And I remember hearing there was a, a bomb went off 93 yeah, in, in the World Trade Center. Yeah. So does this mean the buildings, you know, not there anymore? And, you know, it, like, hurt a pillar, basically. I mean, uh, it, I had the sense after that of a kind of invulnerability. And I think in general, that, that it stood that way to me about that particular event. You know, these little terrorists, they can't, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they, they're like a flea bite. Um, but in general, I think Americans grew up with, Americans prior to 9-11, a sense that, you know, these kind of things happen in other parts of the world. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, there's instability in other parts of the world. There's kind of, you could be a victim of a, a war or a terrorist atrocity if you're in various other places in the world. But America is somehow safe. We are... Uh, that kind of thing doesn't happen here. We're too powerful. We're too mighty. Everyone knows it. You, people can't attack America and get away with it. And I grew up very much with that sense of America. I think a lot of people did uh, in the 80s, 90s. Um, and I remember I was starting to think that, and I was sort of, in a kind of in Koei way, proud of that. There was, I thought there was something good about America that made, it, made us safe here. Mm-hmm. And I remember being very bothered when the attack on the coal happened. Mm-hmm. Which happened in uh, in late two thousand, um, and there had been you know an escalating set of attacks on American institutions since nineteen seventy nine, of course, from uh, Islamist uh, mm-hmm. militants with the with um, with uh, the Iranian Revolution. But there have been different ones over the years. But I remember particularly the coal, like some people in a little boat blew a hole in a in a in a military ship. Mm-hmm. How could we let this stand? And there was something. Like, we need to do something about it, a kind of feeling of worry. But it wasn't huge news. It was just one thing that was happening while we couldn't figure out who won the presidential election. Um, And 9-11 was that writ large. And I think everybody had that experience of we're not safe or protected from the world in the way that we thought Mm -hmm. we were. Mm -hmm. I think that was an overwhelming kind of American reaction that um, different people reacted to differently. I think some people reacted to positively, um, mm-hmm. thinking that there was a way in which we had to be brought down a peg. And, um, but um, I think most of us reacted to it, um, you know, not well. This is mm-hmm. not a welcome, uh, a welcome discovery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the, the notion of, of, of uh, um, not being, you know, not being vulnerable was definitely something that... that it was, it was uh, uh, from abroad, it was a very similar thing. Like, well, that can happen to, to the U.S. This, this seems crazy. Mm-hmm. And the one thing to mention also from that day is how everything stopped in Brazil, too. It's not like mm-hmm. people were going about their business, not paying attention to this. This was like everybody watching on TV and saying, what happens next? Because one way or the other, you know, we're in Americas, we are very much dependent on a lot of things associated with the U.S., mm-hmm. right? So I don't think there was any sense of threat for us physical threat in Brazil, we, you know, we've never been attacked. Uh, but, but it's something that, that, that uh, everybody understood, the, the sort of like the consequences to all of us and how important it was to be, you know, and, and I think it was, it was a pretty clear, I'm sure there's like overwhelming support to, to America at that point in time. It was not like any sort of like, aha, you imperialists. You know, no, no, I think it was very much like, uh, no, no, these are our friends. This is right. not something that, that, that uh, and, and uh, you mentioned about the vulnerability aspect of it. I just learned today, I was doing some reading about this. We think about Pearl Harbor as being an attack in the U.S. soil. Well, that was actually not, it was a territory at that point mm-hmm. in time. Mm-hmm. So the, only, the, the earlier attack to, the, the only time before 9-11 that there was actually an attack in U.S. soil was the War 1812. Mm-hmm. It's a long time ago, right? Yeah. So, so yes, you know, very much not, not, not a place that, that you know, maybe anybody thought that could have been attacked. But. Yeah, and I remember Greg, Greg mentioned that there may have been some people in the United States who thought well, we got our comeuppance and that was good. I think that was a very small minority, and they didn't express that view very much. And mm-hmm. quite to the contrary, I had really never seen uh, that much unanimity around coming together and mm-hmm. trying to formulate a common resp- appropriate response mm-hmm. to the United States, at least in the early days. There, that, that, that diminished over time. But it wasn't, there wasn't a political, the event was not followed by a lot of political controversy and debate. I think that's true on the large public stage. Mm-hmm. I was um, 
a first-year graduate student in philosophy mm-hmm. um, at a program that had, um, you know, a number of people who were explicit Marxists and had mm-hmm. um, uh, some of them had very bleak views about America and its role in the world. And I don't think there was anybody who was quite saying America is, uh, you know, America deserves it or it's worth it mm-hmm. or what did you expect? But there was among some of my peers, I remember being at a party where this came up, right. a lot of reaction to the display of American flags, for example. So American flags came up all over the the, right. the city, um, and somebody said, you know, don't people know what that means? And I said, you know, yeah, it means life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But mm-hmm. it was a, a attitude among my cohort there, and it affected my relationship with a lot of people. That, no, it's a symbol of imperialism for a lot of people. They, um, and, you know... Uh, a lot of people don't recognize the horror and the injustice right. of American right. So, um, yeah, I think that was a minority view, but it was a minority in some influential places and in a way a minority that yeah. touched my life in particular. Yeah. I mean, I saw that someplace. I saw it in church. So, for example, we would have some church meetings afterwards to go to a Presbyterian church. And the strategy to invade Afghanistan came up very quickly, right, because that's where the hotbeds and the breeding grounds for these terrorists mm-hmm. allegedly were. And uh, there were a lot of, and in these church meetings we had, there were a lot of people, people who go to Christians, a lot of Christians are pacifists naturally, mm-hmm. and they, they like to turn the cheek, things like mm-hmm. this, and there were active debates about whether or not Afghans should be invaded or not. Mm-hmm. You know, many people characterize it to a, it's already a rubble, why do you want to bomb it again? Uh, those of us who thought it was actionable said, well, this is where they're training and equipping these people to do these kinds of things. But I didn't mean to say there were, there weren't differences of mm-hmm. opinion. Um, they just manifested themselves. What I saw, there was no glee mm-hmm. in the attack on the United States and the, group, and the people group that I saw. And, and, and I think it's also true across uh, uh, our allies abroad. Uh, the, the reaction of the UK, France, and the whole of Europe was very much immediately very supportive. And, yeah. and, and you know, the, the, yeah. there was never, I think, I don't remember seeing scenes of any country that was like gleefully seen that oh yeah see there's a yeah. chip on their on their armor right yeah. now right yeah. it was very much like a, a overwhelming set of support yeah. and, and that came across in the even in the invasion of Afghanistan and the, 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 yeah. the, there was definitely something that came with it I was watching Connie Rice talk about the immediate the, the Secretary of State at the time mm-hmm. talk about the immediate aftermath of this and to your point she said article 5 of NATO which is the provision that mm-hmm. if one is attacked we're all attacked was uh, was what's the word executed was invoked not by us. It was invoked by our allies in Europe. They came, They approached her and said, we want to do this. And she said she was kind of put aback by it because she had had a conversation with President Bush about whether they should ask for it or not. And before they even asked, they they did it. So it was, it was, there was a lot of support from Europe. Right. And there was a tremendous sense of, of that um, signals internationally that this is a kind of moment in history that things are going to change or might change. Or yeah. something. We have to, what's next, yeah. right? And right. Right. there was going to be some kind of military response, presumably, or at least the opportunity for it. How is this going to affect world geopolitics? This must have been part of what everyone in Brazil was thinking, and right. I think everywhere right. around the world. And um, I think, in general, uh, most countries stood in solidarity with America and were, mm-hmm. you know, uh, thought were horrified by this, by this attack. But I think it's, you know, there were... Um, Groups that plotted and planned this, and there were governments that were uh, supporting those groups covertly. I mean, certainly the Taliban in Afghanistan, but yeah. I'm sure uh, Irani- Iranians were known, none too sure. upset about what happened, right. and there were Saddam others. Even. <laughs> right. Or Saudi, even some more Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Uh, parts of Saudi Arabia. Right. Mm-hmm. 
And um, you say there weren't many uh, photo, uh, images of people celebrating, but there were a few that went around on the news. I That's mean, true. Uh, there was a. I Never think knew it whether was they were the, true or not. I mean, it seems like there was like staged some of that. But might but, have uh, been. But there was. I mean, I remember um, some people celebrating in. Um, I think it was one of the Palestinian territories, and there must okay. have been people somewhere around the world. Sure, absolutely. Um, so, what were the after effects? I mean, what would you guys say are the big picture policy or some of the big picture policy changes that resulted from this? We could start with specific policies or a theme running throughout them. I, I think we, we may have mentioned this. Is, is um, I think there was from my, I, I don't I don't know much about foreign policy. Not something that that, mm-hmm. I, that I particularly you know uh, uh, knowledgeable about. But as far as domestic policy, the thing to me that that stands out as a consequence is a normalization or encroachments on civil liberties in a way that has long-term impacts that, that, you know, at first we don't realize, well, it was necessary. We needed to do a better job and get information in order to get the bad guys, you know, and act before. And, and in fact, one might say that we're very successful at that. There was no other big terrorist attack since yeah. 9-11. So I don't know what the counterfactual is, but you can say that maybe the actions that were taken, the better coordination of all the intelligent uh, units and the, and the things that got passed, the provisions of the Patriot Act, might have led to to an improvement in our safety, the, the mm-hmm. creation of TSA and, and all those things. But I think those things also, they come with a normalization of certain aspects of government intruding in our lives that, that we never revisit. We didn't now start thinking about the cost benefit of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we still, do we still need to, to go through security the way we go through security? Uh, do we still need to have you know our bank accounts being whenever you transfer some money abroad? Ben? And that kind of normalization creates, I think, a sense of like, well, okay, the next thing is now it's not a big deal. We keep doing it, you know, we keep doing it. And we saw something like that playing out. No matter what you think about the, the, the events around the 2016 election, that apparatus played a role in, in something that was very unique in our history of a sitting president investigating a, knowing about an investigation of a political candidate, a presidential candidate, right? And that was approved through a FISA court, I think. That was my understanding, which is, again, something that, uh, a provision that was created during the Patriot Act, and and whether it was right or wrong, that's not the point. The point is that that was that was not a terrorist right. investigation. That was something to do now that can influence domestic policy. Right. So some of the pieces of information that are available now that you know I might be on the phone with my doctor or my kid or whatever that thing you might think, well, they're not going to listen to you because there's nothing important about any terrorist related thing. But you never know how they can be weaponized later. The existence of that data and the, the, the fact that, that, that we're doing certain things. And there was some pushback. I think we have, we have seen the, the, I think the courts struck down some, some policies, mm-hmm. some, some, some strategy the NSA was putting of like gathering data uh, in massive scale and so mm-hmm. on. But still, I think that, that that normalization is something that worries me. Um, and there was a crisis and that created you know, new things that I don't think government necessarily should have the power to do forever. And the next crisis comes along and we see the thing happening again, right? We are living still under what one could call a governor's dictatorship in the country. Nothing was legislated in the past year. It was all by emergency fiat, by, by, gover- by governors, which is, again, is not great. Mm-hmm. At a minimum, I'm glad that after 2001, a lot of things were legislated. The Patriot Act had passed, you know, both houses of Congress voted on, both like Senate approved the invasion of Afghanistan, even the subsequent invasion of Iraq that was legislated and, 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 and um, it, I think that there was, a, again, a growth in presidential authority since 9-11 um, that we see moving always bigger, that becomes yeah. always, always uh, more powerful. And I think now Congress is being just too lenient about uh, executive power. 
So <coughs> I, I see a direct path actually from that, just like the, the, mm. the ever-growing imperial presidency of the U.S. Yeah. is something that worries me a lot. And, and um, yeah, I, that's, that's the primary thing that, that I think is a, mm. is a consequence. Yeah, yeah I, agree, I agree with that, but I want to put some context mm-hmm. in it. I, you used the word, it uh, solidified. Mm-hmm. you got to realize this is taking place, though, in the birth of the Internet. And the first browser is Netscape in 1994, right? So mm-hmm. this is just right. six or seven right. years before this. And, um, and you're seeing inform- you know, information technology, the costs are going down, cost of storing data is going down. I mean, NSA could never operate the way it does now in 1985, right? You just can't possibly collect that much data and analyze that much data. So the technologies of uh, data analytics and artificial intelligence have abetted the surveillance state that the government has used to address these security concerns mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. could be legitimate but subject to a lot of abuse. Right. So it's not. I don't, I don't think we have the role we have because of 9-11. I think it was a factor uh, that contributed to the way that the state claimed to find some use for itself in, in the modern economy. One way of thinking about it is some decisions had to be made about mm-hmm. what um, policing um, was going to look like in the Internet era, what um, kinds of access there would have been to this information, what kind of warrants might have been required uh, when there are new surveillance capabilities uh, that are now technologically possible, what will the law be regarding them? And some decisions would have been made about this in the 2000s, one way or another. It was necessitated by the new technology. But those decisions were now made in a time of panic and a sense of crisis. And... Um, whether the same decisions would have been made or not, they would have, I think, been made differently. The kinds of considerations, the weightings given to things, the nature of the public debate about them, I think would have been different had it not been occurring um, in the wake of, of this uh, atrocity yeah. and in, a, I think, a climate of fear. And I agree with the concern about the growing concentration of power mm. in the executive. Now we see it with the governors in COVID, but particularly in, in the president. And if you think about when was the last time that executive power was significantly rolled back at the federal level, I think it was after Nixon. Right? So there were um, some hearings about after Watergate and so mm-hmm. forth, and there were some inquiries in the 70s into what the um, security services were doing, the FBI. There was the investigation into the counterintelligence programs. And uh, there was the passing of the special prosecutor uh, thing under which kind of star eventually. Right. Uh, so there, there was... Um, in the late 70s, early 80s, maybe a kind of concern about executive power and a worry about the needing to roll it back. Um, And it stayed pretty much where it was rolled back to, I think, largely through the 80s and 90s. It might have been blips one way or the other. But I think we saw a tremendous concentration, um, Mm -hmm. starting with Bush, then Obama, then um, Trump and Biden, Um, legislature kind of ceding more power, and then presidents claiming more power, using executive orders for bolder and bolder right. things and uh, getting less and less pushback. Yeah, yeah. This is why you had sent out a preparatory email that brought up the notion of American exceptionalism, which mm-hmm. was a term coined by Alexis Tocqueville. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, your comments here ca- caused it to raise it again. I thought it was an intriguing marker to bring up. Um, just remember what Tocqueville believed, right? He, he had an operating political theory that democracies turn into dictatorships mm-hmm. because over time people freely vote for things that will give them more benefits, less work, mm-hmm. more benefits, things like that. And he thought that was kind of an operation, a universal rule until he came to America. He visited America in the 19th century and he saw a country made up of strongly self-reliant individuals whose behavior was protected by a bill of rights, strong property rights, heavy valuation on 
entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. uh, heavy value, heavy reliance on products and work ethics, and he's kind of changed his mind about the inevitability of that. So I think the question in your email was, did the 9-11 attacks kind of erode or diminish American exceptionalism? Mm-hmm. And I think they did to the extent that they caused people to be willing to cede more of their individual liberties, their individual autonomy, their individual action to a government who they thought would protect them. And he said, that's the negative side, right? I, I think uh, I'm always positive about this, though. And I think if you really look at uh, Tocqueville, uh, he looked at the domestic complexion of America and thought that's what held up exceptionalism, mm-hmm. you know, indivi- the value of individualism, the way the economy ran, separation of uh, powers, federalism. Mm-hmm. He really thought federalism was a big deal. He was totally impressed by the energy of the civic organizations and local governments and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I think I think the intimation of your email is correct. There was a punch to the gut on exceptionalism. But I don't think American foreign policy and our foreign adventures have ever been part and parcel of what makes us exceptional. Mm-hmm. I think they're a result of, of our exceptionalism. So Pew had an interesting report in 2017 looking at uh, American exceptionalism, and the, the question was you know, something like, you know, do you believe America is the best country in the world among the best or not among the best? And there's some deterioration. I think the, the first iteration was in like 2003 or five, and the last iteration was in 2017. And by 2017, it was only like 15% of people said that America is not among uh, – of Americans said that America is, you know, not – if not the – uh, greatest country, you know, among the greatest country and the greatest countries, and there were there were slight there were slight partisan uh, differences in this. But I, I I thought I thought this was you know interesting in in as much as I I thought I thought the slice of people who would have said uh, America is not among the greatest countries would have been larger. I guess I guess my prior was that you know 20% slice would have been much bigger. So I, I read this and I was you know, very pleasantly su- very pleasantly surprised that the vast majority of Americans believe that America is, if not the best country, you know, among, um, among the best. Yeah, yeah and, and I think so, so the, 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 the growth of the federal government after 9-11 also plays a, plays a hand in different aspects. Uh, so... Mm-hmm. so the regulatory state, in particular associated with, 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 with the financial world, is something that was bigger, more intrusive, right. which has consequences in, in commerce across the board. Sure. Right? Um, and then you have the, 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 the policing of, of um, the militarization of police, something that 2020 was a year where we, we had a lot of rumblings about in the country, discussions about how police conducts itself and how police mm-hmm. does things. There's a link there. There's a link between... I think that the heavy armor vehicles and all those things that you see policing having these days, that was not in place in 2000. That was something that the federal government, through their grants and their sort of like needs to support local law enforcement mm-hmm. to you know, be better prepared to respond to things like terrorist attack, created an apparatus that is much stronger now. And again, I, I, I am a big supporter of policing and, and I think we have to be uh, uh, good policing is a necessary condition for a functioning society. Mm-hmm. Um, but... We do have in the U.S. now a police that is very different than, than what it was before and looks very different than, than, than the rest of the world, right? Mm-hmm. But that it also has shows you, and the point I want to make about police is more about the, the, the ever-growing influence of the federal government and how sure. states and localities operate. 
they might say, oh no, you make the rules in the local, you run your police, but if you want our money, if you want the grants, you need to get sure. it you know, in line and do these things this way, right? So they have a lot of regulatory power in how things work locally, which again, is an erosion of mm-hmm. that of that uh, exceptionalism and, right. and of the Tocqueville right. uh, take on, on America. The other thing that I think we have to bring up is the fact that we had two events right back to back after 9-11 that I think created a big problem of our, the way we look at our institutions and how we trust our institutions. I think there was a lot of unity and I think there's, it's, it's, yeah, the unity after 9-11 and, and the support to the president was, was, I think, very clear. There was no problems there. Then 2003 comes along. And the, mm-hmm. the follow-up to our invasion of Afghanistan and the success, the early success of Afghanistan, of like clearing out the Al-Qaeda, right. making sure they would control the country, that wasn't, it was a very successful endeavor in the very beginning. Um, then we decided to continue the sort of neocon, you know, spreading democracy across the, 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 the Arab world and, and the potential role that either Iraq had directly or the potential future threat that Iraq presents to us. That, that was presented to our Congress. And again, 99 to 1, I think, was a vote right. to approve uh, uh, the invasion of Iraq. And that comes without, you know, that was the later discovered that, well, they didn't have the weapons and mass destructions that were, was the, 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 the premise for, for that invasion. Mm-hmm. I think there was a big hit. There was a big hit politically for George Bush. Mm-hmm. There was a big hit, I think, for our institutions. All of a sudden, we're like, wait a second, how can we get that so wrong? Right. How did 99 senators with all this privileged information and everybody got this uh-huh. so wrong. Was that, what's this? And, uh-huh. and then you start getting these things of, oh, it's because of oil. Like, no, no, no. You know, there's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of questioning of, of all the goodwill that was built up after 9-11, sure. I think started eroding right there, right? Uh, and then you have 2008, five years later. It was not, not that far. Mm-hmm. You have this huge crisis, huge institutional crisis right. that, that in some ways, way more serious in terms of the cost of life and the cost of people than 9-11 actually was, right? And once again, there, I saw a lot more glee reactions in the world about, ha-ha, those capitalists are mm-hmm. finally falling. Right. Look, they're just these greedy pigs. They're going around and, you know, and of course, this is going to, at some point, mm-hmm. a house of cards, right? But that was a big hit. We all of a sudden felt that, well, our institutions are not as strong as we expected. Mm-hmm. And people, politicians, take, you know, take advantage of that. Uh, political mm-hmm. movies take advantage of that, and I think that sequence of events of 2003 and 2008 are are, are then I think a big. And I don't, that's not a consequence of 9/11 necessarily. There's no link between 9/11 mm-hmm. and 2008. I don't think there's any direct link that we can think about. But the intermediate step, I think, of the Iraq War, and uh, the, even though again it was a successful invasion, the military executed its mission very well, very quickly. But to what end? Um, and I, 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 I can't help to think that was like a starting of a, of a bad sequence of events and how the political, uh, at least, uh, uh, discussion in the country, you know, the polarization that follows and all that. I think there was a real unraveling around those two events, too. And I do see there as being a, a thread tying them, not a thread tying the financial crisis in particular, but the, the way we reacted. So, and it's related to my take on American exceptionalism. I mean, there's a particular history of that phrase in, in de Tocqueville, um, and there's much interesting and right about what he said and what you said about it. But um, kind of the way I think about it is, I, I don't think, what I think of as American exceptionalism or, or national self-esteem in America, you might think of it, is not just the whether somebody's willing to say that we are the best country or one of the best countries. There are a lot of people who will kind of, in a surly way, say they're the best when they don't believe it and they'll be kind of fighty about it or whatever. Um, like but a kind, <laughs> but a kind of um, confidence that comes from 
a real conviction that you're good. Mm-hmm. And I think it's part of um, the kind of American sensibility mm-hmm. to have a real conviction that there's something really morally good and right about um, about the American form of government and at the basis of American institutions, whatever problems, evils, wrongs there might be, there's some kind of core virtue or goodness to America. Um, the world's first uh, representative, fully representative government, the, the first government formed, I mean, that last isn't quite true, but this, this one is the first government formed on an explicit declaration of a moral principle mm-hmm. and the principle of individual rights, right. and that that kind of moral core is a cause of America's wealth, prosperity, military power. There's some connection between those two things. So I think kind of central to the earlier American sensibility, the American sensibility when I was growing up, Mm -hmm. um, what I and almost everyone I knew took for granted with the exception of the kind of people who were trained to undermine uh, American values in that way, is that there's something essentially morally right about America that's a cause of America's preeminence in the world and a cause of our safety here and wealth here and prosperity here. And I think that that conviction is true, and I still think that it's true. But I don't think Americans, I think we less and less have it. We less and less have the conviction across the culture that that's the case. And I think this is not like the left doesn't have it. I think the right doesn't have it anymore either. Um, And I think it really started to unravel in the wake of 9-11. We didn't know why we were attacked. We didn't know what to do about it. There was something... Obviously, everybody was rallied and was excited and ready to do whatever the sure. president said and so forth. And there was an almost kind of weird uh, cult, uh, like it was, if you were criticizing Bush in the wake of, of uh, the response to 9-11, you were seen as unpatriotic, as bad. Uh, I remember the Dixie Chicks, that country group, um, mm-hmm. you know, people were bo- trying to cancel them because they didn't like Bush. Um, I didn't think their views were any better than his, but um, I had friends who were... Um, uh, very critical of Bush, thinking that the farm that his foreign policy wasn't assertive enough and didn't assert the right things. They sure. got really, um, really uh, called out for that from both left and right. But there was something I think transparently weird, wrong, evasive about the response to it. We didn't say what we were fighting against. We're fighting a war on terror, like so the IRA is our enemy here. There was a kind of weird squeamishness about naming or properly identifying who the enemy was. Not, um, not early on, right? Two th- in the fall of 2001, it was clear who it was. It was the Taliban and the Al-Qaeda and it was Afghanistan, called the, and that's who we went after. It was called the War on Terror. Why was Iraq suddenly in it? Why was that, North that's, Korea that's in later. the Afghanistan? It was, late, it was a little later, right, right. And, and, um, and the whole, like, a, you, either we were with us or against us is, like, this dichotomy was... But it was either you're with us or you're with the terrorists. I think even very early on there was a, a lack of identifying what is the movement that's involved here. Mm-hmm. And I think there was a, a kind of false dichotomy of either we vilify Islam as a religion and we become kind of bigots against uh, all Muslims, or we pretend that this movement has nothing to do with that religion or, or it's not a movement that's right. spreading in that religious culture. There was a, a toxicity about thinking about that right. whole thing. And I think the toxicity of about thinking about that whole thing made us not really identify what this movement is, not think about what would happen if we invade a bunch of countries in the Middle East, set about trying to create democracy there, and not think about what do the people in those countries want and what are they going to vote for and what's going to happen if there's a Muslim spring. For example, will Islamists come to power in Egypt? Why is there an Islamist movement? Why is that targeting us? How is it happening? 
There was a total lack of thinking about that on the part, or, or rather not a lack of thinking, there was a kind of evasiveness about it on the part of policymakers that I think led us not to set clear foreign policy objectives. We lost both the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan after an initial seeming victory in them because we had no end goal in the wars that made any kind of sense. We didn't have an end goal because we weren't thinking about that. And more and more, I think people got the sense that there's something our leaders aren't telling us. There's something our leaders aren't willing to name the enemy, aren't willing to describe what it is. Um, Donald Trump got applause when he said, I'm willing to say that it's radical Islamic terrorism. But um, there's, I mean, George Bush wasn't saying that. And I don't think radical Islamic terrorism is really the right word for it. But there's something like that we didn't kind of think about. What is this movement? What's, it relation, what's its relation to the religion? Such that people were either hating on Muslims or feeling like they should or... Um, or being just evasive about the issue. I think that was a major problem. Then I think we were lying to ourselves, and, and eventually it came out. We got the Afghan papers about how much was known about how bad things were militarily, how early. But even before those papers came out, it was knowable in 2004 and 2005, even in 2003, that we had rules of engagement that didn't make much sense. Soldiers were coming back um, with horrible kind of stories about what they were doing and what's it for. Mm -hmm. And I think that really erodes trust institutions. Mm -hmm. Then we have uh, the Iraq invasion and this tremendous intelligence failure. And people think like, we can't trust our, our governments are bozos. You used to think like if the government of Iraq and the government of the United States said something, sure, I don't trust politicians. Sure, there's a lot wrong with the government. Who are you going to believe, this guy or this guy? I think now uh, people have just much less faith and much less confidence in the American government. And it's sort of, uh, to an extent, been earned. I think we've, we've shown that uh, as a, our institutions are less good than we think they are. But thought they were, but I think a result of that, the kind of bottom has fallen out in people's uh, perception of American institutions. So it's not just they've become more critical as maybe we all should have been to begin with, but there's a sense of nothing the institutions tell us is any good, um, uh, nothing about our government is really moral or good, and I'll just believe whatever I feel like, whatever people, my friends tell me, whatever conspiracy comes about. And I think you can really see this... Um, there were all these kinds of conspiracy ways of thinking and, and skepticism of the American government always on the American left. I think it's now become totally endemic in the American right. We had uh, our last Republican president is someone who likened our moral status to that of Vladimir Putin, and no one cared that he did that. Could you imagine in the 1980s or the 1990s a Republican candidate saying anything like that and not being... Um, not being I think uh, a lot of people care. He's not a fair characterization. No one cared, and he's just that was still like, won the. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a it's a hard problem. He right? Still won I mean, the nomination. Forget about whether he won the presidency. No, I, I, I understand. I, 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 again, I don't. I don't. The, the say that no one cares. Like the entire set of elites are like, oh, what do we do here? Right. It's but very the, the very base, hard. I mean, it's not like that's seen by most Republicans as a black mark against them. How, how do you respond Democrat. to the polling data though? That doesn't show this. Broad loss of faith in government. It's about the same as it has been. Also, I mean, I just again, I'm going to invoke my age again. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that anybody ever had the Pollyannish view that the government told the truth all the time, and it wasn't its motives. Its actions weren't um, based on corrupt motives sometimes, uh, and that they were duplicitous sometimes, mm -hmm. and that they were themselves people who were prone to mistakes or capable of mistakes. Like, I guess. I guess what I disagree with, you shouldn't be so pessimistic as a young man, <laughs> but what I disagree with is that we somehow cro cross the Rubicon. You know, somehow our institutions are now 
bankrupt and corrupt, corrupt and unbelievable, and they weren't before. I, I don't, I don't see that loss. Well, I see them. I see American as having vigorous, robust, and imperfect institutions. So two, there are two questions. So one is the polling data. The polling data, as Steve told us about, isn't how much people trust institutions, but how whether they think America is one of the better countries. So I think we need different polling data on institutions. I don't know what the polling data oh, is. Congress there. approval. I mean, you can look at Congress it's approval. Very low, yeah. It's very yeah. low now, and I don't actually know how. And it was how never too high. I mean, it was never too high, exactly. Congress. It's, it's gone way down. It's gone down. I mean, but approval, even at institutions like our institutions, I think if you look at how people trust universities, for example, is something mm-hmm. that all of a sudden is record low mm-hmm. relative to where it was before. and They have considerable trust in military I think that, that's still pretty high. That's yeah. still pretty high. Yeah, that's, that's um, a good point. So, uh, um, and I'm not sure there's been a temporal decline in all these things. I think Congress has been lowly rated for a very long time. Always in the bottom of all the others, that's for yeah. sure. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. So um, it's, I think it's how much does one trust the government and should one? And how does one respond if one doesn't? So... I don't think people were ever all Pollyannas. They said everything, every politician's got a heart of gold mm-hmm. and everything I'm told is true. But I think people have the idea that if the American government intelligence services tells us um, that this country has uh, weapons of mass destruction, mm-hmm. they're likely right. They're not going to be wrong or lying about something so big, either wrong or lying. Mm-hmm. If the American uh, intelligence apparatus tells us that there's been... Um, an attempt to hack us by a certain country and that that's uh, trying to interfere with an election. Uh, there would be general confidence in that assessment is true. Mm-hmm. Uh, you wouldn't get partisan bickering about whether it's true. I think um, those kinds of things, I think, were much, we were in a much, there was much more trust than there is now. I, at least I think that's the case. And it's not that it can never be re, 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 um, reformed, mm-hmm. but we're in a place where I think we're at a very low level right. with respect to that in a way that we weren't before and in a way that I think poses yeah. a real, is, is a major factor in our current politics. I can agree that there's a recession in trust of institutions, particularly if you're talking about governmental institutions, but we've been there before in the post-Vietnam era. Right? In the post-Watergate era. The post-Watergate right. era, right. so right. we've seen that and we come out of them and things change. So I think it's just a cycle based upon tumultuous events that think that we think ended badly. So everybody now thinks what we did in the Middle East ended badly. We didn't have a tax for the longest right, time, right. Uh, and it is what it is, and we reserve the right to go back if we have to. And, of course, a lot of people predict we'll be back in Afghanistan if they use it as a, a, a proving ground for terrorists. But, uh, you know, who know, You know, in hindsight, you, call, you can call it a fail. Mm-hmm. But, again, what are the principles by which you're judging this is a failure? This is what I would yeah, I, 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 It's a I very would, Greg-like question. I would agree. Well, I, I would agree. I would agree with that. I would agree with that in, in the sense that, that it's hard to direct link to 9-11, the erosion of, this, or the erosion of trust that we have right now. I think it's, a, it's, it's right now I think we are at a time where there's a lot of distrust mm-hmm. in, in the government. And just, again, the pandemic didn't help that either, right? There's a lot of that. Linking that 9-11, I think, is difficult. I think there's some steps that were taken along the way, but, but um, and I think 2003, perhaps, is the one that I see as, like, oh, boy, we're wrong. We're wrong about that. That was a bad choice, and that bad choice led to, you know, uh, uh, Republicans not winning the next election, right? So there was a, a primary campaigning slogan of, of Obama versus Hillary in the primary for the Democratic nomination was that I didn't vote for the war in Iraq. He didn't even give him the chance. He was not in the Senate then, but he could claim that, and she actually had a record of voting for the invasion of Iraq, right? Mm-hmm. That was a huge, important thing. Uh, so clearly they play a role much, much later. I don't think it's, it's, it's uh, um, that, that arch 
there. It's, it's very clear on, mm-hmm. on that, that erosion, other than the fact that, yes, it maybe was unlucky that that happened, and then 2008 happened in the well, period the where we're still recovering. Um, no? The role I see is more connected to the things you were talking about earlier. So you have FISA courts, mm-hmm. which are unaccountable, kind of confusing things, unclear whether they're good. I think they're not, but uh, there's a lot of concerns over them. So you have the government doing something kind of shaky, a lot of the people margins, that they right. know about are suspicious about. You have this happening in a context where it's now become clear that there was massive, crazy bad intelligence failure on the war in Iraq. And you have the Snowden coming out with um, all this evidence about people, about um, the level of surveillance. And you have cases where uh, brass of the military and the intelligence services seem to be lying about it. So you have a situation where there's real reasons now for an erosion in trust in these government institutions. At the same time, you have... um, transparently dishonest and unconcerned about Americans moral, America's moral standing politicians capitalizing on that lack of trust to make um, kind of arbitrary claims about what's happening uh, in the campaign. I'm talking here specifically about Trump, but others are doing it. So there's a kind of reason to be mistrustful of the institutions. There are people who are taking advantage of that lack of trust to make kind of irresponsible claims, not saying, yeah, there are reasons to worry about these institutions and here's what I'm offering to be more accountable. Mm. But, you know, they're not accountable, so believe in my unaccountable BS instead. Um, You have people on both sides polarizing around that. Um, And not much... um, And when you have people standing up for process, for things that are um, against... uh, collection of, or exercise of unaccountable power by various um, uh, officials, you don't have people credibly, credibly celebrating it. So you have, you know, Democrats credibly, you have Democrats celebrating what um, Republican election officials did in, in 2020 about not willing to kind of pretend that the election results were other than they were. But the Democrats who are celebrating it aren't credible in doing it because a lot of people think they would, you know, uh, they're just like that this broke their way. Um, and there are plenty of cases where those same kind of people have lied, and those same institutions have lied. And then you don't have the people whose way it didn't break celebrating them as standing up against their interests. So I think there is a kind of real erosion of confidence in institutions and respect for the kind of people who are standing up for the values that make the institutions work. And you can see it in in the kind of history. But you know, we need data to prove that that's a kind of article attitude that's spreading throughout the culture. And we'd need surveys of the right things. So yeah. I don't know what they are. Yeah. So, so how do we rebuild? How do we rebuild trust? If if the if the problem is you know, there's no trust, what you know, what steps can we take to rebuild trust in institutions? Is it as simple as, well, you know, if you're in charge of an institution, you need to tell tell the truth, no matter what the what the consequences uh, are for you know your institution and for you personally, mm-hmm. or is it is it something else? Is it a much deeper problem? Oh, I, I like to think about the principles in which the institutions are, are built, right? So focus on the principles no matter what. Not necessarily say the truth. Mm-hmm. Of course, tell the truth no matter what. That's always a good principle. But, <laughs> but the, like focusing on the principles of the institution and not trying to... But it's hard because, uh, uh, you know, the, the opportunities are, are always there for um, the politicians, in particular the politicians mm-hmm. currently, right? There's always bending the rules. Not bending the rules, but like using the rules to their advantage locally because that's that's what how the process works right um and i think that's why 
most likely the stress in politicians is, is a common thread in the in the in the unless um, maybe the leaders that that are very charismatic and, and draw a lot of positive feelings from people and so on. But I think that the reason why Congress has never been highly rated is because people understand that the process is messy. But and the individual congressmen are highly rated. The individual and they congressmen get re-elected that's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. So which which is really paradoxical, right? Yeah. yeah. It's not paradoxical. Yeah. I mean. Voters or my guy is my guy. Right, my guy is right, my guy. Right, I want my right. guy to do what I want to do. I want the NSA director right, to lie to right. me all day as long as he keeps me safe. Right. So you got to remember these are democratic institutions who are trying to affect the goals and objectives of the voters. The voters aren't always rational, and the voters change their their minds from time to time. They also don't share the same goals. Yeah. But 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 so one one example one example I think in the distrust that I I I really think it's very important for us to to work on. Is that I hope Congress decides to assert its role and be more prescriptive in how it writes legislation and be more making sure that it reigns in executive power because that I think is a sequence of mm-hmm. you know giving up executive power, giving up legislative power to the executive is something that is going to just allow for the next sort of demagogue and the next populist to start using in worse and worse and worse ways, right? So that's something that I think both sides have a lot invested in it. Let's make sure that Congress reigns in and, and bring in the, the, the sort of oversight that's due because that's, that's where I think the most, uh, the, the, the deliberations there will generally lead to better, mm-hmm. better decisions, better institutions, so on, if they do their job, if they actually act on doing their job. Mm-hmm. I don't see any of that, of that coming in. I don't see, I, I would think that, for example, you, you like to bring Trump a lot and I disagree a lot with you on the effects of the Trump presidency. I think it was actually a much better presidency than people give him credit for, even though I really disagree with the style and the, 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 the substance was actually much better than the style. And, uh, do you like his haircut? I do not like the haircut. <laughs> I don't have my MAGA hat today. I should have brought that one. <laughs> I don't have one. Um, no, but, but, the, 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 but even, so I was making that point, is that I thought that clearly was a very unusual mm-hmm. new president saying a lot of crazy stuff, right? And be an outsider to the system, and clearly outsider mm-hmm. to the system. I would think that at that point, the system would be, wait a second, we need to make sure to rein in the power of that office so mm-hmm. that whenever that happens again, that's under control, right? And you saw the reverse of that. Mm-hmm. And for me to decide, nobody seems to care about yeah. that aspect. And that's, that is something that I think would be very positive. Like, instead of focusing on the next scandal for the, for, the, for the news, they could have focused on, well, you know, yeah, this person we don't like was a weird, different mm-hmm. person to be chosen for, to be president. Let's make sure that we act as, as a body, that, that, that we have the power. We are the people, not him, right? He's just an executive of our will. Let's make sure that's the, that, that's the case. But there was no movement on and that, and that's surprising to me. And that everyone, including those who liked Trump, could recognize that if uh, some guy could get in this office that we don't like, and what will he do now? But this brings me back to the kind of de Tocqueville-like point. Because mm. um, when you were saying about why it isn't a paradox that people like their politicians, yeah. right? their congressmen, even if they don't like the institution, you, the kinds of reasons that voters don't all share the same values that they want my guy are the kinds of reasons that de Tocqueville thought democracy led to, to totalitarianism, mm-hmm. right, to dictatorship, um, or to tyranny, rather, he would have put it. That, um, and why, why was it not going to in America? Why was America better? What was exceptional about right. it? Well, yes, of course, we don't share all the same values. Of course, people have um, interests that might run counter to one another and might run counter. But there was... I think, and this is what I think is the central value of America, mm-hmm. um, an agreement, not universal, but very widely held, mm-hmm. 
on some basic principles about what government's role is supposed to be. Uh, agreement not held perfectly, compromised on in lots of ways, sure. I don't think held consistently, but that the That's country the is for the protection yeah. of individuals, right. that um, we need um, balances and checks of power, Correct. institutional structures. It, when somebody is in office, they're not meant to do uh, whatever they can for the sake of the particular people who voted right. for them, but they're rather meant to execute the duties of that office to the best of their ability, right. honestly, and so forth. And it's those values that I think we need to build on if our institutions are going to earn the trust back. And we need to value them as voters, which I don't think now Americans by and large do. Right. I think by and large Americans today are very scared by the other party, whichever party they're not part of, or they're less part of. They're scared by the Democrats. What will AOC do? Or scared by the Republicans. What will Trump or McConnell do? And on a kind of view that our side needs to do whatever it can, whatever strong-arm tactics it can use to make sure those other bastards don't get to force their agenda down us. And I think what we need to be thinking about is what are the principles that prevent us from being in a mob rule, in a tyranny of the majority where the competition is just who gets to be in the majority to tyrannize over whom? What are the things that made us better than that? Mm -hmm. And where are the places, who are the people, what are the moves, what are the things that are happening now that are um, exceptions to that? Yes. And I, how can I, we celebrate that? I, I, I see, well, the, uh, the principles I see is a, a one institution that to me is the most important American institution of all is our marketplace. Mm -hmm. Our marketplace is unique. It's never been replicated anywhere. We're a very competitive economy for that reason. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that gives me a lot of hope when, you, when I see the crisis that we just lived through mm -hmm. and the way we're able to weather that through our economy in a way that's like our luxuries didn't disappear in the middle of like a, a, an incredible hit to the system uh, early March 2020, right? Mm -hmm. Our corporations operated very well. Our, you know, the, 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 the way entrepreneurs were able to quickly change the way things are done and, and, and improve life in a lot of different ways. That gives me hope. The fact that the American people and our American, the ability, and by the way, when I say American people, they're just not Americans. Like the, the, the sort of like entrepreneurial spirit that is unique right. in this country, that is exceptional in this country, that gives me a lot of hope. And I think the more, the less we pay attention to the politicians in some ways, the better. But as long as they get out of the way, right? That, that's what we need to make. Hopefully those people, that kind of entrepreneurial spirit, eventually is going to start supporting the, the types of government that like, you know, what you need to do is make sure that the streets are clean, the trains are running, and get out of the way. <laughs> um, I would hope that we see that, especially like in a in a in a in a in a the, the, the sort of uh, um, I guess the, the the young folks coming into into the marketplace are these days a lot more, you know, less 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 likely to just want a stable job. They're more creative in terms of their abilities. The types of things that they want to do are more potentially uh, uh, entrepreneurial. I think that's the word that, that I keep using, right? The freedom. So that's the part that gives me hope. I mean, me too. But the freedom for the market to do that. Right? The freedom that the market requires to do that depends on there being objective rule of law, That's depends true. on it not being the case that whoever happens to be elected next can put the kibosh on everyone's plans. And we need to sustain and grow the kind of government that is like that. Mm -hmm. And I think what we need to be doing is looking for the people who are, uh, and celebrating the people who are showing... Um, some kind of adherence to some elements of the principles of separation of power, mm -hmm. of rule of law, of procedure, mm -hmm. and putting that above um, the interest of their party as a power block. Mm -hmm. And so I would say um, um, 
Joe Manchin, I think, in, uh, has, has whether you agree with his principle or not, he's someone who believes in bipartisanship and he's kind of sticking to it. I think Elizabeth Warren, um, not Elizabeth Warren, not um, uh, um, Elizabeth Cheney is someone who you know is going with uh, what she thinks is the right thing to do, even when it's unpopular with her party. Mm-hmm. Who are people that are doing that? Whether you agree or disagree with their particular decisions, mm-hmm. celebrating the the um, the uh, the impetus to follow principle and thinking about whether the principles are right rather than um, kind of, uh, uh, they don't have to be super profound, deep principles, but just the principle of, you know, rule of law, um, how should this institution work, what standards should be used here, as opposed to direct, immediate political expediency. So let me ask a question about that, um, because I think, again, I, I just, we're no longer talking about 9-11 to some degree. Uh, but but it's, it's uh, 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 the last year, we saw a very unique set of uh, measures by government. Very unique. Unprecedented across the board. Unprecedented. Yeah. So the scale that was done was unprecedented in this country. Um, and yet, there was very dis- big disagreements about how, what was the role of government in doing so. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I think there was a robust disagreement. Robust yeah. disagreement across different states. And there was they, a they lot of people. Models, so. Yeah, and, and there was a lot of people in this country that stood by freedom, even at a cost, at a high cost. I mean, the cost of freedom is is, is it, it was something that people, you know, weighed those trade offs and said, "I want to be in a place, this place, a place that will respect people's individual rights to do this, this, and that, regardless of the potential cost of life that that would generate." And you saw that very clearly. And again, you might say, you're always going to say, there's always political expediency there because mm-hmm. politicians take advantage of that feeling. But that's something that was a reaction to the types of people that live in those places. There's a reason why North Dakota act in certain ways during the pandemic and, and Massachusetts act in a very different way. I think those voters are, are, have a, a, a tendency to believe in individual rights in, 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 in a way that the politicians reacted to it. It was not because... You know, I've, uh, they didn't care about human life, or they didn't care mm-hmm. about like. But no, the, the sort of like incredible intrusion into people's lives that was proposed in the beginning was something mm-hmm. that a lot of us fought from the very beginning. It's like, mm-hmm. no, you cannot do that. Mm-hmm. That is beyond the pale of your duties, even in the light of a crisis. This is not the crisis that justifies these acts that you're taking right now. Um, that gives me hope as well. There's a robust disagreement on the role of government. Some places accepted some some rules. Some places did not accept some rules. And you know, to be determined. The long run effect in health associated with that, we don't know clearly that, but but uh, uh, that was unique to the U.S. Again, unique to the U.S. Uh, you don't see uh, a lot of Europe, perhaps one country in Europe that decided to be a little bit different. It was an outlier yeah. in Sweden, which I never would expect ahead of time. Australia, New, Z- New Zealand, is the, is, is the other extreme? Is the other extreme? And What's I think this was, uh, Tocqueville saw this in the American culture when he was here. He saw he called it self reliance. Right there was a, a view that was embraced in Florida and Texas and some of the other states that give us the information, let us be responsible for our own health, safety. Well, in the best moments of those states, that was the view. But I don't think that's really what dictated their responses. I mean, DeSantis is not um, consistently or even close to consistently saying the government should stay out of this and it should be private decisions, right? Uh, He banned cruise ships from exercising their private judgment from docking in Florida. Uh So it's... um, on a lot of issues, I think they're reacting properly against a tremendous government overreach. Mm-hmm. And it's important that we have a spirit here that does that. But too often, the form that that reaction took was 
just preferring another government overreach policy to the particular one that they dislike. Well, but they and all, so we have the governments warring, governments they warring all have with one another. on the ability of the individual to manage their own problems. And right. the errors that DeSantis makes and Abbott makes are putting the onus on the individual mm-hmm. to take care for their own health safety. Right. The, 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 the sort of the, the anchor of, of the principle is there. Yeah. Right, and then you might disagree with the tactics of it, but the, but the strategy, the overall goal, is the same: is to protect individual rights. And um, I mean, the li- life in Texas since May 2020 has been very different than life in California since May 2020. Yeah. And I am very very happy to be living in Texas during that time because I I see what life was like for friends and family in that in those states where where. And again, there's a cost. I, I, I even if I accept the cost of it was more dangerous to live in Texas, let's say, based on the fact that there's maybe more potential infections and therefore mm-hmm. maybe more people will die. I think that's some, it's a trade-off that I think individuals should be involved in making the decision as opposed to, you know, by dictat, right? And, and, and I do, and again, we don't have to talk about individual politicians, it's that the sentiment yeah. is robust and the sentiment led to a lot of places in the country to be way more skeptical of the heavy hand of government dealing with this. And one side was very clear in, the, in, the, in their willingness to accept the heavy hand of government, and the other wasn't. Well, um, I agree that Texas COVID policy was a lot better than, um, I think, all, than Florida's, but also than Massachusetts or New York's. Um, but I, part of what it is to think of this as a rights-based thing and to really respect individualism, as opposed to what the socialists used to do or the communists used to do or the fascists used to do, is to respect private property and contractual arrangements as ways of dealing with this. That I, as an individual, not only have the right to choose for myself when I'm all alone, but choose for my business what's going to happen, choose for um, the people I associate with, choose the terms through contracts. And as soon as you're um, allegedly in favor of individualism, stamping on people's ability to do that as a business or as an institution, I mean a private institution, I don't think you're on the side of the principle of rights. And but, I think but, but you need to give me better examples of that because I don't think that happened in the state of Texas or the state of Florida. Cruise ships. The cruise ship was a very short-term thing. I mean, it's not like, you know, the state of Texas is, is telling the business, no, business, if you want to have a vaccine mandate, go ahead. If you want to have a mass mandate, go ahead. As a business, you can do it. They never, you know, we're, we're talking about places that said, so all right, business have to shut down for mm-hmm. an indefinite amount of time. And we didn't do that. And said, like, you can operate. Here's some rules. They put some rules in place, like, you know, reduce density, whatever. But the, the, the sort of guiding principle is, like, let the business operate as best as they can under some conditions. Whereas the other side was like, no, 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 you just can't. Economic activity has to cease right now. And that's obviously a, a very different, you know, uh, a measure of, of application of a principle. I guess that's what I'm saying. I think Abbott and um, uh, DeSantis are significantly different on this. I think Texas is a lot better than Florida here, but we should have a, a separate that's right, yeah. that's right. recap <laughs> on COVID, uh, COVID policy. Um, we're also over time. So what did we learn from this? Is there any kind of summing up of our perspectives on this? Um, I mean, one thing to worry about um, to connect the COVID policy to the other thing is there's whatever you think about one party being worse uh, than the other, there's right now we're seeing a tremendous use of um, a, a politicizing of decisions by governmental institutions. So take the Biden um, mandate or quasi-mandate or whatever you want to call it on, on vaccines. Uh, we have a president directing OSHA to make certain determinations. Mm-hmm. Before, maybe we had Trump directing the CDC or whatever to do it. But 
if these institutions are really, I don't think there should be government institutions doing what OSHA and much of what the CDC does, but if there are institutions, they're supposed to have standards and policies and practices, and you're supposed right. to be able to grow up in them and learn this culture right. and the expertise, right. but we're seeing them more and more directed by whoever happens to be president. And I'm worried that that's something that grew out of 9-11, uh, and our response to it, maybe uh, you're skeptical that there is a kind of trade. Yeah, don't there. worry about it. I mean, there's the Administrative Procedures Act that the OSHA has to follow, and there'll be a lot of litigation if they are found to violate it because the president tells them to do something. So the things that presidents can do are executive orders, which often don't have any weight in law. Mm -hmm. they're, they're kind of guidance. So I, I guess I'm, I, think, I think we have, I think it's all about checks and balances. And I think we have a lot of checks and balances that allow politicians to bluster President mm -hmm. Trump was bluster. I think President Biden is bluster. But I think once the litigation and the legal challenges come forward, they don't really have that much authority uh, than, than, say, President Eisenhower or people b before that. I don't see the big change. And that's true. Yeah. The CDC moratorium on, 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 on evictions, right? It was something that was struck down by the yeah. courts, right? The courts intervened, and, and that, that, that overreach was not right. you know, allowed to continue. I... I Again, I think I, I, the only thread that I think is common across the entire conversation is the fact that we all agree there was some erosion of civil liberties that came as a result of that. Um, and there is some growth in presidential authority that came as a result of that. So regardless of the trust issue right now, I think those trends are... Do you agree with that? Do you agree with that? That there was a growth in presidential authority. authority. I think yeah. it's not, not, a, not a legal thing. Or uh, it's not a legal thing. Or I think it's, I think it is more about con Congress abrogating their oversight responsibilities. And I think it's a political thing. I think it's not an institutional thing. And I I, I would say there's a tension between uh, sort of collective security and individual rights that has run from you know September 11th through to the pandemic that we're still trying to figure out you know what the you know. To what to what degree should we curtail individual rights if it, uh, you know, helps a larger group of mm -hmm. people? Like, to to what degree should my bank transactions be uh, monitored if it in fact you know if that monitoring in fact helps us detect illegal activity? Uh, we've been notified that our cameras are <laughs> about to, about to die, so. Thank you, everyone. And before we go, we have to give our disclaimer that the views expressed in this podcast are our views. They don't necessarily reflect the views of the University of Texas. Tomorrow. Yeah, and, they, and our, our, our views may change tomorrow. tomorrow. And they don't reflect all of us, it turns yeah, exactly. out. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, our views don't even reflect our, our own views. So, well, thank you, Greg, for organizing. Yeah, yeah, thank for you, Greg, for organizing. And, yeah, we hope to see you uh, next, time. An, yeah, next, time. Episode the next, episode, next episode of Free Lunch. That's right. Great. Thank you, guys.